Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi, I'm Dana Steele, and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Series. Dana, thank you. It's a real honor and a pleasure to have you on the series. Uh, Dr. Todd Dewitt, who went down very well on this series, recommended you. You explained how you met in an aircraft traveling together and this larger-than-life character, and, and so are you. I mean, we've already had a chat before the show, and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, things we've had. But your latest book coming out, 100 ways, 101 Ways to Rock, Running for Office. I was fascinated that in 2018, you ran for the US Congress as a Democrat in Texas, which I love the, uh, the challenge of that. You're living in Palm Springs at the moment, just temporarily with your husband and, and your son. Uh, you're a rock star speaker. You're an author. You're also a podcaster. Uh, you're a Texas Rock Radio Hall of uh, Famer. So, wow, there's many other things you've done, which I haven't even mentioned. But let's begin with currently what you're doing and you know, a little bit about your life and your career and, and sort of what you've learned about leadership on the way, because you write a lot and you talk a lot about that and your background in radio. So over to you, Dana, more, please. I can sum it up in one phrase. I used to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> I was a, a rock and roll DJ at one of the top rock stations in Houston, Texas, uh, Rock 101, KLOL, a couple of other stations before that. But I was very fortunate to be on the air in my hometown uh, pretty much my entire career for over 20 years. Went on to um, uh, write a book about uh, what I learned about success from the world's greatest rock stars called Rock to the Top. That led to a speaking career, which led to more books. So it's been a little bit of everything, but I always, uh, you know, people say you do so much. I do. I do everything. I do the podcast called The Rockstar Principles of Success. I write a book series called 101 Ways to Rock. I wrote a book called Surviving Alzheimer's with friends, Facebook, and a really big glass of wine when I went through that experience with my mom. Uh, I handled it with dark humor and, and, and hope to help others. So I have done a lot. I invest in Broadway. I have a, uh, we have a hit musical all over the world right now called Come From Away, and I uh, sincerely miss my Come From Away family right now. I can't wait till we all get back on the road and get back on the stage again. But, you know, it kind of all goes back to the day I was fired from Houston radio. I was fired for being pregnant. Yes, that's another long, long story. But it was 1995. I was pregnant with my first child. And, you know, it just it wasn't cool to be pregnant then. And... Uh, it was, it was a weird time. And it's all I'd ever done since I was 17 years old was radio. I got into it on a dare in college. There was a DJ that was really cute that I wanted to date with. And I thought if I auditioned for the station, he would ask me out. He didn't. <laughs> but, uh, but we've been friends ever since. But the minute I put on the headphones, I just, I knew, I knew I was where I needed to be. And I, I loved it. Um, 
being fired from radio was so devastating. But my life changed for the better from that moment on. And my life was pretty freaking cool at that point. I was at the top of my game. I was, you know, making a good six-figure salary for hanging out with rock stars and playing music for a living. Now, don't get me wrong. I worked. I worked very hard. I was extremely organized. I, you know, there was a lot I put into it that made me stand out from other DJs, but it was still a great job. But being kicked out of the nest, I like to compare it to being a bird. I was the baby bird that was kicked out of the nest and had to learn to fly. And I have applied that to everything I've done ever since. And that is, there is no such thing as failure. It's all trial and error. Mm. And as terrified as I was leaving radio, I went to an acquaintance that was dating a friend of mine. She owned a PR firm and I was known as the queen of self-promotion. I carried pictures. I signed autographs. That was what made me stand out from other DJs. I worked it. I worked the marketing. I worked the promotion long before I even knew that's what it was called. I was networking. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just hustling is what I was doing in my late teens and early 20s. But I went to have a meeting with this woman and I said, you know, radio's changing. I can see the writing on the wall. And my shelf life as a female rock and roll DJ is always going to be shorter than, say, a Howard Stern. That is just the nature of the beast. And I want to make a living. I have lived a good life. I have made good money. I have been on private jets. I've been in nice homes. I've traveled. I would like to continue doing that. And I've got to find another way to do it. Radio is not going to do it. And I said, I've been really, really successful at promoting and marketing myself and keeping up with trends and that sort of thing. If I did it for other people, do you think they would take me seriously? And I literally just went to her for advice. And I will always say getting kicked out of the nest and then her, the first words out of her mouth were what completely changed my life. And she said, I'll hire you right now on the spot. Wow. Which was an incredible confidence builder. And I, you know, I screwed up along the way, but again, it's not failure, it's trial and error. So fast forward to now, I'm, I'm 61 years old. I'm not afraid to try anything. I won't eat liver and onions, and I'm not particularly fond about the idea of jumping out of an airplane. But other than those two things, I'll pretty much do or try anything. Because if it doesn't work, you just move on. Um, even this pandemic, I've had my moments, as we all have, but I try to take a big breath, Jonathan, and just when I start to get into that, oh my God, we're going to be here forever. I just, big breath. Okay, where am I? I'm locked down. What can I do? I can start something new. So I started a podcast. I've written two books, released, I've released a book during this podcast our podcast released a book. That's what my husband says. It's Tuesday morning. Have you written another book? Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But I I, I released a book early on. I updated a book. I needed to update a long time ago. I've finished running for office. I'm getting ready to release the update to how to rock your LinkedIn page. I'm working with a chef slash evangelist, long story, on uh, a new book in the kitchen. 101 Ways to Rock in the Kitchen. So it's like, just take a big breath. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, I'm a kind of woo-woo like that. One of those woo-woo people. I believe in karma and everything happens for a reason. 
I could either sit around and day drink and do jigsaw puzzles, which I did for a couple of months, or I can start to create content. I can write books. I can do podcasts. I can talk to people like you. I can try new things until we figure out what the new normal is. So that's mm-hmm. kind of been my life. I've, I, I, I went from working at this marketing firm to people started, uh, I created the first, oh yeah, somewhere in all of this, I created the first online NASA and space-related e-commerce store called the Space Store. My husband flew for NASA for 30 years, and I would get calls all the time from people asking me, I need to get a shirt, I need to get a hat, I need to get some of that nasty astronaut ice cream that no astronaut has actually ever really eaten in space. Sorry to burst your bubble. Um, And at the time, there were no stores, there were no online stores. The only place you could get it, they had like little little commissaries, almost like a military base, but you had to be badged. You couldn't just walk on to the NASA properties and go shopping. So I would have to go buy these things and then ship them to people. And my agent at the time needed some things for a client. And he went, well, that's stupid. You know, people were just starting to create catalog or, or, or online things. He goes, they should at least have a catalog or something online. And Jonathan, I found myself waking up at two in the morning thinking about this and thinking and thinking. And after a year of waking up in the middle of the night, I just decided to go for it. I bought HTML for dummies and taught myself basic coding. I, there, were no, there were no shopping carts. There was no Amazon, no Yahoo shopping. I found a banker in Cleveland, Ohio, who was moonlighting at night and on the weekends building this new finagle thing called a shopping cart online, uh, which here I have a trivia question for you. I asked these in my speeches, Jonathan, what is the industry that gave rise to online shopping and perfected secure credit card ordering? I would imagine it's probably porn. Yay, ding, 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 ding. We have a winner. <laughs> so uh, I, I will tell you, I didn't peruse a lot of pornography sites, but I did have to go look to look at their shopping carts and figure out how all of this worked. I learned how to look into the the back end, so to speak. <laughs> of <laughs> Sorry, that's just there. Isn't it? That, that was, that's a line for the taking uh, of these websites to see how they had built their shopping carts. And then I went to the little store at NASA thinking I was being clandestine. I pulled my I had a jacket on and I pulled my my baseball cap down really low. Now, keep in mind, I've been on the air with the most recognizable female voice in Houston for 20 years at this point. People knew exactly who it was walking around the store. But I was I was I was like picking up coffee mugs and looking on the bottom and looking inside T-shirts and looking on the back of the astronaut ice cream to see who made it, who was the manufacturer, who was the vendor. And I just started putting that. So I started the space door with nine products. I had some patches. I had some t-shirts. I had that nasty astronaut ice cream and it grew into a million dollar business. I sold it to a NASA contractor. They made me vice president of space hab. So I went from rock and roll DJ to speaker. Well, first I went from rock and roll DJ to marketing to e-commerce to aerospace executive. (laughs) I know people say, is this a mistake on your bio? I'm like, nope. I was the vice president of retail operations for Space Hab Inc., a leading NASA contractor at the time. We would have these 
these executive, you know, C-suite meetings. Uh, and it would be Bernard Harris who had flown on the space shuttle three times. He was running a division and, and these scientists and these amazing people. We were, we were literally building a broadcast studio that unfortunately never happened, but a broadcast studio that would fit into one of the modules of the International Space Station. And then they would get to me and I would just go, I sell the t-shirt. <laughs> it's like, why am I in these meetings? These people, but so did that. Um, so people thought I was brilliant. I, 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 and I wasn't, I was just a, a hard question, worker. A question with uh, NASA, with your husband as well. I uh, had Scott Parazinski on uh, the show, who was one of the NASA pilots. Uh, yeah. or, or he walked in space. Lovely guy, just really energizing, humble, but yet he's doing technology and he's written The Sky Below. I didn't know whether you'd come across uh, Scott. Oh, my favorite Scott story is we were all in Maui for astronaut Ed Lu's wedding and somehow or another, all of our expenses and excursions ended up on Scott's credit card. And I was like, thanks Scott. <laughs> we, we paid him back, but oh yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like military. NASA's a very close knit. Everybody knows everybody. My husband trained all the astronauts to land the space shuttle. He flew the weightless plane. He was the captain of the 747 shuttle carrier. So, yeah, so in the middle of me being a rock DJ, he's, uh, I, our life has been like a sitcom. It is. Yeah. Um, and he writes sci-fi on the side. So, yeah, we definitely don't, uh, don't sit around a, a whole lot. But, uh, you know, it's, so I've done all of these wild, crazy things. And then somebody started asking me to speak. And I started speaking to groups. And, oh, Jonathan, I was horrible. I'm sorry, I put on my little pantyhose and I put on my little, you know, Hillary Clinton suit. I put on my little high heels and I went and talked about the art of doing business and blah, 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 blah. And people were bored and I was bored. And finally, I just ended it and said, does anybody have any questions? And this guy that had been sitting in the back row in his nice suit and perfect hair and, you know, you know, I, metrosexual, that whole look. And he's got his arms crossed and he's been glaring at me the whole time obviously fed up with anything I had to say, raised his hand and said, did you ever meet Ozzy Osbourne? And it was, again, that boing, that revelation that these people did not come to see somebody who looks like them. They can see that all day long. They came to see the rock and roll chick that they grew up with, that they may have had a crush on when they were 16 or that they won concert tickets from, they wanted to hear about the rock stars. They don't want to hear about business. Well, I didn't want to talk about the rock stars. I wanted to talk about business. I have been a business junkie since I was four years old and my dad would bring home business supplies for me. I loved crisp, you know, letterhead and things like that. Um, so I found, so I started telling stories. Yeah, you know, I know Ozzy, but the best story about Ozzy is his wife, Sharon, is the brains behind all of it. Let me tell you a great story about her. So I, you could feel the energy in the room. You tell could feel the, my energy. It's a great story about Ozzy and Sharon, because we see Sharon on, we used to see her on. Uh, oh, Sharon is, Sharon show. is, Sharon is cutthroat. Sharon is a businesswoman. Ozzy'd be dead in a ditch somewhere, right? Now, if it wasn't for Sharon, Sharon's father managed Black Sabbath. Right. When Ozzy was in Black Sabbath, that's how they met. They've been together and married for a long time. She orchestrated this whole Ozzy Osbourne career. Um, and she is extremely protective of the brand, of Ozzy, of everything. And a very good friend of mine who was the drummer for um, Vanilla Fudge, Carmine Peace, 
was uh, Ozzy's drummer. Uh, Carmine wrote, do you think I'm sexy for Rod Stewart? I mean, yeah. you know, he goes, a lot, of, a lot of music history with Carmine. And Carmine and I, I had gotten to be friends in the early 80s when he had some one of those little hair bands that never made it. But he called me and he said, you know, I'm coming to town with Ozzy. And it was the big tour. You know, it was a big tour. And Carmine called and said, can you do me a big favor? Can I borrow your car? Because people think it's so glamorous on the road, but it's not. You got to go to the drugstore. You got to go to the grocery store. You need toothpaste. And, and you don't have a car. You're in a tour bus. And he said, can I borrow your car? I just, I need to run some errands. I need to do some things. And I'm like, sure, I'll come get you at the hotel before sound check. And you drop me off at the radio station because I got to get some work done. You go to sound check. You do what you got to do. And then come back. After the show, because the show would be over around 1030, I'd be wrapping up whatever it is I did after my show and come pick me up and we'll go get something to eat later or whatever. So 10, I get off the air, 1030, haven't heard from him. There's no cell phones um, at this point. Um, there's no email. There's no texting. I have, he doesn't show up. So 11 o'clock, I finally uh, called the production office at the summit. So I'm like, but I really need to, I need to, I, sp I need to speak to Carmine. He, I know he doesn't work there. He, he plays drums for Ozzy. And they're like, no, he doesn't. Sharon fired him. I'm like, wait, what? Sharon did what? And they're like, yeah, as soon as he walked off stage tonight, Sharon fired him. So I don't know what to do. I can't reach him. Nobody has a cell phone. I don't, yeah, you know, what? I, and uh, I guess he finally called me about, Carmine finally called me about 1130 or midnight. And uh, he's just got this real New York, out of the movies, Queens accent. And um, I can't even begin to do it, but he's like, you know, we had to rent a U-Haul. We had to get all the drums. You can imagine if you've seen a concert, you know how big these drum kits are. And, and he's like, um, can we stay in your place tonight? You know, so I think I finally got picked up about one in the morning. I get back to my apartment. They've already, they've rented a truck and they've unloaded it because you don't want to leave it parked outside because then you're going to have $100,000 worth of drums stolen. So I get home, unlock the door, walk in my apartment, and I've got an entire rock and roll Ozzy Osbourne drum kit in my <laughs> living room. I, and a roadie on the couch and Carmine in the guest room and... I think I had them for several days, but let me tell you that I, it felt like weeks. It was like, you guys have got, to, you got to load everything up and get on the road. But you, um, you have had just, there's so many stories we could go into. The, the one I'm really interested in, aside from the amazing rock and roll story, is um, the fact that you, you went through that really tough time of running for office, which is where, do you want to just tell that brief snippet of just how tough it was and also the person you met in the park. I love that story. Would you just tell that story? You know, when, when Donald Trump was elected, uh, a lot, uh, several people started getting together, women, women who had never been involved in politics in the suburbs started getting together, you know, for wine at five o'clock in the afternoon in the library of my home. And it was, we got to do something. It's time for us to get involved. And it was a bunch of us who had never, it started with with me and a couple of other friends. And then they brought in more friends to the, uh, my dining room table seats, 12 people to the point that was full. And then we had, it was like grassroots, Jonathan, nothing I'd ever been involved in. Closest I ever get to politics is maybe the occasional March and, you know, my snarky comments on Twitter, but this was serious. 
this was serious. When Donald Trump was elected, uh, I was like, we got to do something. This is not going to end well. See, people should listen to me, Jonathan. Um, but we started talking and it was like, wait a minute. Uh, who, I didn't even know who my congressman was, you know, who my congressional rep was in Texas. Uh, so more research, found out who he was, how he voted. Nobody had run against him because if you ran against him as a Democrat in this area of Texas, your family was threatened, your livelihood was threatened, your business was taken away from you. And it just seemed so wrong. This is not democracy. This is not the way the system was set up. And I knew these people had grown up listening to me and I knew they would at least let me in their homes. They would let me in their bars. They'd let me in their restaurants and they would at least talk to me out of curiosity or yeah. they would at least listen to me. Um, but the, I, I fast forward there. It was the more we talked about, we've got to do something. Well, what is it we have to do? We have to find a, uh, we have to find a candidate. Um, so we started looking for a candidate and it's like all these eyes that we're getting together a couple of times a week to talk about how do we, how do we do this? How do we save our country? All started turning towards me and I'm like, whoa, 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 rock and roll DJ, no secrets. Everyone knows and pose nude for the cover of a magazine. I don't think maybe this is such a good idea. And they're like, but it is because it, you have nothing to hide. You are yourself. Um, I don't know if you want to bleep this or not, but I'm like, yeah, but you know, like every other word is fuck. And they're like, well, we can work on that. Um, <laughs> so, the, cover, um, the cover picture was very good, by the way. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was right after Demi Moore had done it. And um, if you ever saw the movie Armageddon with yep. Bruce Willis, it was with yes. Bruce was still married to me more. My husband is a pilot in the front of the plane when they're doing the taxiing scenes. Bruce Willis is in the back seat. My husband is in the front seat of the T-38. And he, of course, Bruce fell to his knees laughing on the tarmac going, oh my God, your wife is a shy mom. <laughs> oh, um, but anyway, um, you know, it was... It was one night, we were still having lots of meetings. People were still trying to get me to do it. It was all so confusing. How do you raise money? How do you, how do you file to run? What do you do? What are the rules? Where do you go? Who do you talk to? Will anyone take me seriously? And one night, Charlie and I both, I've worked from home since 2000. Charlie's worked from home since 2010. That The other one goes and stops the other one. And we close our office doors and we get a cocktail and we sit down in the library and we talk to each other about our days and talk to the kids and you know make dinner and whatever. Um, and in one of those moments, Charlie brought me my wine, handed it to me, looked me straight in the eye and said, you can do this. Wow. That you could You're the only one who can do this. this. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was like, do you realize you're never going to, do you realize you're going to have, you know, Nick's, Nick's in high school. He's starting his senior year of high school. I'm not going to be here for him. I've already, you know, been gone pretty much emotionally while I was dealing with mom and Alzheimer's, it's going to put a strain on our relationship. He, he, he said, yeah, but you're, you have to do it for the country. You're the only one I said. And my odds of winning are slim to none because it's one of the most gerrymandered. It's one of the reddest districts in the United States, not just in Texas. He said, yeah, but you can, you can change some minds. You can open some minds 
you can make a difference. So that's what we did, Jonathan. And um, I mean, would I do it again? I wouldn't change anything. Will I do it again? It's not an absolute no, but it's brutal. It is, you leave the house at 6 a.m., you come home at midnight, you never see your family. When you do see them, you're on the phone fundraising or you're tired or you're exhausted. No matter what you say, some of the people like it and some of the people yell at you. It's been two years. My life, I was under police protection and I wasn't running. Uh, so it's a, it's a. You had to have the, police protection. Most. Mm-hmm. It's the most patriotic thing I have ever done. And I don't regret a moment of it. We were thousands of new voters. We got thousands of young people involved in the process. We had volunteers as young as 14, 13, 14, 15, forming clubs and coming over and getting involved. We changed over 50 um, judges in Harris County, one of the largest counties in the country, um, for the better. I'm a Democrat. I will not apologize for standing for healthcare, education, jobs, free internet. I will respect your views. There was, there was one event I was speaking at. I was supposed to be speaking with my opponent and he sent his wife instead. And she's a lovely woman, I mean, but it was very much a slight. And at some point she was speaking and the audience started to boo. And I just out of, I wasn't even thinking, Jonathan, I, I'm not a politician. I jumped up, I said, excuse me, I grabbed the mic and I said, that is not what this is for. This is not how we will act. Whether you agree with Brian Babbitt or not, this is his wife and she loves her husband and she respects his point of view and she's trying to tell you what it is and we will respect her time and her voice. And I tell have Republicans call me and go, I've never seen anybody do anything like that. Yeah. Again, I'm not a politician, um, but I had to be one. This book is not just for Democrats. It's for anybody who wants to get involved in the process. My husband is a recovering Republican. I tell people I sleep with a Republican. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is not my parents' Republican Party. This is not my husband's Republican Party. It's been taken, um, it's been taken, it's been taken over. over. It's been taken over by extremists, by terrorists. This book is for people who would like to get involved in the process. This book is for people, not only really, I mean, it, it is for people in the United States, but there's a lot of things you can take from it really anywhere in the world if you wanna make your world, your country, your community a better place for everyone. Um, a week before we uh, came out here to Palm Springs, we came out here for three months. We have a, a place out here, a little place um, that we decided we're just gonna spend you know, the three, the three nasty, the three months that have nasty weather in Houston, we're going to go spend it in the sunshine. Thank you very much. Um, we were walking the dog, and a young black woman, probably 28 years old, stopped me and said, love your hat, love your shirt. We all got to work together. And I said, so you get involved. I said, I am. No, make sure you run. And she goes, oh, I'll volunteer and stuff, but I wouldn't know where to start to run for office. And it's just, I mean, literally it was, it was a half a mile from this black woman to the front door of my apartment downtown. And by the time we got in the front door, I could not get to my computer fast enough to write the first 20 tips. And I, this, I knew. Was, this was because she, she was saying she loved your, your hat and your T-shirt, which was about voting for Biden and for Harris. Well, she was just passionate about being involved in the process. 
Yeah. And, and she, it, it was that, but she said, but, oh, I wouldn't know where to start. And you thought I could teach people how to start. And we need, we don't need 61 year old former rock and roll, you know, snarky Twitter posters <laughs> like <laughs> me. We need 28 year olds. We need 24 year olds. We need 30 year olds. This is their country. And we, we so far, we did pretty good, I thought. And then I realized we've just screwed it all up. So we need them to get involved. We need everybody to get involved, whether it's your country or my country. Yeah. Um, we, you, you, if you don't like it, be the change you want to see. Yeah, that's so, that's so true. So, I mean, there's so many questions on, on your life we go, but I, I wanted to go on to my second question, which was really um, your proudest moments and your darkest moments. You talked about one of the darkest moments being fired, but the benefit that came from, you don't fail, you learn all the time. But, um, and you talked about a proudest moment of, of uh, running for US Congress in 2018. Anything else on the, on the darkest moment and something oh. from that? Just if you'd picked one, one example, really. Uh, oh, really? The darkest, darkest moment is having my mother diagnosed with Alzheimer's, my best friend. I'm that daughter that called her mom every single morning from the moment I left for college at 16 till my mother died in 2015 and to not be able to pick up the phone and call your mother anymore. And nobody talks about Alzheimer's. Nobody, there's no warning of how frigging bizarre it is. And, um, you know, that you'll be having a great conversation with your own mother who will look at you and say, I'm sorry, what is your name again? Wow. It's, and you're just off. Uh, yeah. So I can't, but, I can't imagine what it was like for you. The, my only, my only experience is we looked after my wife's mother for the last three years. She died in August and she had Alzheimer's. Um, we were in the sort of mid stage of it. And you realize that the kindest thing is for them to pass away because she oh, any other illnesses. Yes. She was the living dead, really. Well, I started, when mom was diagnosed, I called my brother, I called my, my two surviving uncles, I called my two nieces, uh, of course, I called my husband, called my kids. And at that point, I couldn't repeat the words, mom has Alzheimer's one more time. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So I took the chicken way out and I went on Facebook because I knew a lot of her friends were on Facebook and they followed me. And I thought, well, I'm just going to put it on Facebook and I'm going to let them say it over and over again. So, and, and I woke up the next morning and there were close to a thousand comments from friends, family, strangers, just people going, my mother, my grandmother, my wife, my husband, my aunt, my uncle, my best friend. I was overwhelmed at how many people I was surrounded by who had dealt with it and never talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I started posting very raw, honest, but also there was one thing one day, I don't even remember what the first thing was that made me laugh. And I posted, I, I'm laughing. What's wrong with me? And somebody said, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. I, I read a very good book when my mother-in-law had Alzheimer's called An End to Alzheimer's, which is explaining a lot about uh, Alzheimer's and, and particularly about the diet that we have. So you and I can actually do an awful lot now. Uh, I'm approaching 60, you're just um, similar-ish age. 
and um, there's much we can do with our diet and exercise, things like that. What would you say would be the sort of top two tips you've learned about really preventing Alzheimer's or limiting your chances of it? What would you recommend? Um, get a good night's sleep. If, you're, if, you, if you don't get a good night's sleep, figure out a way to do it. I go to bed a little later. I get up a little earlier. I have a routine now. I have sheet spray. I have essential oils. I put in earplugs. And then I've taught myself a meditation to meditate myself. And if I do still wake up at two in the morning with another book idea or a company idea or, or fretting over something like, oh, I don't know, a pandemic, I breathe myself through that and exercise. Yeah. Um, and and I, I have to add a third one though, keeping your brain active. There's a great book called The Nun Study where a group of nuns over the last, I believe it's been 30 years now, have donated their brains to science as they each pass away because they're an extreme, they're an extreme controlled group. They pretty much do the same, act the same, sleep the same, live the same, don't drink, whatever. It, it's a very, it's a good control group to study over a long period of time. And there's one particular nun who, when she died at something like 103, when they autopsied her brain, she was, there's seven stages of Alzheimer's. Her brain was in the sixth stage, but she had never exhibited any um, uh, any symptoms of Alzheimer's. She started a, a water project in Kenya in her late eighties. And they said it was like her brain had moved all the Alzheimer's and the tangles and the dead part to one side. And the other side was just extremely robust. Wow. So good night's sleep, exercise, and keep your brain active. Learn, people say learn a language. I'm one of those people that can't I can I can do the bad words in several languages but that's about it yeah um uh yeah. play the piano I did that as a kid that's like torture to me so yeah. instead I write books write speeches do podcasts read learn just try new active. things just keep active yeah. yeah and thinking taking yourself back to being the young Dana Steele um, age 16 or 18, what bit of advice from all the wisdom you've done from, you know, being with all these rock stars, writing about them, uh, learning from them, author, podcaster, um, running for, for Congress, what bit of wisdom would you give the young you? Oh, I, it's, a, it's a bit of wisdom I learned during this pandemic. Quit worrying about your hair. You're going to spend hours and hours, which translates into days and weeks and months of your life over a 40 year span, worrying about what your hair looks like. No one cares. <laughs> yeah. Quit worrying what people think. They don't care. Yeah. If you worry what people think about, you'd be surprised how little they do. That they're, they're not very little, very little. I shaved my head the third week of the pandemic to raise money for charity just again out of boredom for fun because I'll try anything now and I shaved my head raised 14,000 US dollars for the well Houston Food Bank hair came back black what the hell is that so I dyed it silver and I really liked that and then it grew out again and then I shaved it again and really I was stunned to find out no one cares yeah they really don't yeah and, and now we'll go around the, the Inspiring Leadership Compass with just one or two anecdotes and stories and views from your point of view. Firstly, the, the moral quotient, your integrity, your values, your beliefs. You know, what, um, 
values do you live by? And, and what happened on the occasions you let it slip, if there's an example of how you pull yourself back from not living by your values and how, how you, you learned from that? My mantra is the more you do to help someone else be successful, the more successful you will become. And I have just had a bleeding heart since as far back as I can remember. I've adopted chickens and dogs and cats and people. And, and, and you know, when the, that kid was being bullied in first grade, I was the one that would stand up to the bully. I was just born that way. Um. I don't know how to answer the second part because I can't think of a time where I haven't. Yeah. So you've really lived done by that. Yeah. I love people. I got that. So honestly from my mom, Yeah. Um, my mom, you know, I used to joke, she was in everyone's business, but I look back now and she was, but she, she had good intentions. Yeah. She loved she never met a stranger and I've just always even when I didn't realize I was living my life that way I have lived my life that way which follows I have on. no regrets I have no regrets Jonathan well, that, no that's no regrets whatsoever yeah that's a lovely way uh to live your life and, and really there's a second element to that what I call PQ meaning and purpose and, and, you know, like why you do what the kind of things you do. I think you've alluded to this already, but your dharma, your calling, your vocation, it's, it's involved a lot of different things. But is there a, a common thread running through that? I think the common thread is, uh, I don't know. Um, I just love people. My husband says I don't collect things. I, in fact, I throw everything away, much to the chagrin of everyone in the family. You can open drawers and closets in my house. They're empty. I hate clutter. I collect people is what he says. I have a friend in every corner of the world, every country, everywhere. There's not a place we can't go that I don't think of, oh, wait, I should pick up the phone and call so-and-so. It's funny, my, my 21-year-old, it was a few years ago, I don't know. We were, uh, he overheard a conversation I was having with my husband and uh, um, a friend of mine was actually uh, the, the mentor to a very young, smart guy trying to get more involved in France by the name of Macron. <laughs> wow. And, and my son, who I think was 17 at the time or 17, 18 went, excuse me, I hate to interrupt, but are you telling me I'm just like one degree of separation from the president of France. I'm like, okay, well maybe two degrees, but, um, but yeah, I just, I collect cab drivers when I get in, you know, when I get in an Uber in New York, I probably have best friends with the Uber driver by the time we get wherever we're going. I, I will talk to anybody and somehow or another, I end up with their phone number, their email, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I, I carry books with me. I, so what is the common thread is networking. Yeah. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a potential of being the missing key to your success and you don't even know it. And it could be the person who just delivered your growth. You don't know. Yes. You don't know who knows who. That's, that's so lovely. And, and my wife and I were last January 
just as the pandemic hit, we were on holiday in Sri Lanka. And um, one of the Buddhist Sri Lankan guys was taking me to the temple. And he was saying that if you take the attitude that everybody you meet is enlightened and you're not, they're all enlightened. What can you learn from them? And I thought that was a really profound thing. It's, it stayed with me. Taking on from meaning and purpose to health, well-being, uh, mental health has been hit a lot by a lot of people. Uh, what, what do you do to look after your physical health and your mental health? I mean, I've um, had moments when I've been very uh, depressed and on a couple of occasions quite suicidal because there a couple of circumstances in my life that were very tough. But what have, what have you done when your physical health or your mental health has been under par and, and how do you keep yourself in a good, good way? I walk. I love to walk. I walk and I walk and I walk. And I make myself get out and do a walk in the morning, even if it's a short one. I have, during this pandemic, taught myself a great gift. And that is after lunch, I go check emails, settle in, see where I'm doing, let my food settle. And then I walk again because it clears my mind to attack the rest of the afternoon. Um, at the end of the day, I take a walk now because we're trying not to drink in the month of January because the pandemic has been, the pandemic has been an excuse to woo, let's order another case of wine. Um, and meditation's probably what saved me. I was having horrible, horrible um, vertigo in my probably mid forties and I'm 61 now horrible vertigo to the point they wanted to inject dye in my brain. I had been to doctors. I had been, I'd had MRIs. And when they suggested injecting dye into my brain, my little spidey sense went, you know, that just doesn't sound like a really good idea. <laughs> um, and I had a chiropractor who for years had been saying, girl, you are too stressed. You are too high strung. You need to try yoga. You need to try yoga. So I thought, you know, before I let them inject dye in my brain, I'm going to go try this crazy yoga stuff. And the first six weeks of yoga, you know, quiet your mind. Oh, I got monkey mind. And I, whoa, you know, squirrel. What? Oh, look, look at the ceiling. Oh, look at the floor. Wonder where she got that. I got it. You know, what are we going to cook for dinner tonight? The first time, <laughs> it took about six weeks, but the first time my mind ever really quieted, quieted, is that a word? Got quiet. I felt the stress flow out of my shoulders. Now I still have stressful shoulders after keeping them hunched for 50 years. I tell every masseuse I go to, do not take this as a challenge, okay? Just yeah. gentle. Um, and so I started doing yoga and the vertigo went away. It was, I was clenching my teeth all day while I slept. I was grinding my teeth and it was pulling so tight on my right ear that it was pulling my inner ear. And that's what was calling the, causing the vertigo. You know, the only time it's really come back was after Hurricane Ike when we took 53 inches of water in our house. And I was what? starting to get vertigo again. And I went outside and sat cross-legged next to the pile of debris and just did a breathe. Just, I, I gotta just breathe or, or this vertigo is gonna come back. Um, and then I learned to meditate. So yoga, and then I learned meditation. And meditation, I just really started to get into about four or five years ago. It may have been longer ago. Between Alzheimer's, Congress, and a pandemic, those are my three John Lennon lost weekends. I lose track of time yeah, yeah. Um, during all of those. 
Well, it's, it's lovely but, to hear you say that, Dana, because I have a morning, I call it morning bookends and evening bookends. The middle of the day, you don't have much control over, but your mornings and your evenings, you can. Uh, and my morning always begins with the Daily Stoic. I'm a, a big Stoic philosopher fan with Ryan Holiday, the American who, who wrote the sort of Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus and Seneca stuff. And then I do 15 minutes of uh, headspace, uh, mindfulness meditation. And then I do 30 minutes yoga or I do HIIT training in my garage, which is turned into a gym. And, and that I'm now making that my routine. And the day begins a little later because of that. And then I walk the dog. Um, but, but it sets me up for whatever stresses and strains are going on. And, and it sounds like you've found the same. So that's, that's great to hear. Let's move on to uh, IQ and wisdom and judgment and decision-making. Who do you tap into for your, your decision-making and your wisdom? Oh, wonder husband. Wonder husband. That's, that's what I started calling him on the radio years ago. And now everybody calls him that wonder husband. We are so different in so many ways, you know, rock and roll DJ, military, uh, all over the place, very regimented, Democrat, Republican, short, tall, got high for years, never so much as smoked a joint. You know, we're just, we're like, we're completely different, yet he is my best friend. He's been my best friend since I laid eyes on him. I had a blind date with an astronaut. A bunch of people were coming with us to see a Crosby, Stills, and Nash concert. I saw Charlie get out of his car. I swear to God, Jonathan, I felt an arrow go through my heart. I said, excuse me, are you with us? He looked up at the balcony and went, I hope so. He had on the Tom Cruise aviator glasses, lowered them, looked at me over the top of his glasses and went, I hope so. And we have been together ever since that moment. That is a lovely story. I wonder, well, look, one of the skills you clearly have, I've already sensed from all this, uh, the network you have and just the easy rapport you have, is this emotional and social intelligence. And uh, I was asking you about the sort of the key skill of the life hack. What do you find it is in emotional intelligence? Listening. I tell a story in my speeches and I do that. I take that very dramatic pause in my speeches. People ask a question and while you're answering it, they're already thinking about something else. I wonder where he got those shoes and I'm hungry. What time is like? I mean, people don't listen. The first time I was invited backstage with the Rolling Stones, I thought I was hot stuff. I mean, you make sure everybody sees you've got on a backstage pass. I'm going backstage to hang out with the Rolling Stones. And then you go backstage and there's not a Rolling Stone to be found anywhere. Um, there's a bunch of other radio people like you pontificating. There's a, there's a bunch of record people. There's a few roadies, maybe a road manager, somebody in charge roaming around. And the very first time I was backstage with the Rolling Stones, I've always listened because you can pick up so much information if you just are, just listen, just shut up and listen. And one of the, the somebody came in to the person in charge and said, okay, they're almost ready. So this is the way they do it. You know, I've had my pictures taken three times with the Rolling Stones. Do the Rolling Stones know me? No, but in every picture, I look like I'm their best friends. 
Um, but what they do is they bring you back and when the band's ready to have their picture made, they pose everybody strategically and then the band comes in and fills in the holes, takes the pictures, says thank you and leaves. That is your total interaction with the Rolling Stones. So right before the band came in, I heard a roadie say to the person in charge, okay, they're ready to come in and remember, don't screw it up this time. Put the shortest person in the room on the front row, at which point I kicked off my heels because I'm, I'm short to begin with. And when I kick off the heels, I'm even shorter. And the Rolling Stones are tiny, tiny little men. And I make the Rolling Stones look tall. So <laughs> if, if you go look for a picture of Dana Steele and the Rolling Stones, you will see Mick Jagger and Keith Richards hanging on me like we're the best of friends. And they look tall because they got their arms around me and they're taller than me. Um, so the next two times I went to see the Rolling Stones and went backstage, I wore flats. And there you go. So I'm always in the front row between Mick and Keith because I make them look tall. But it's because I listened. If you just listen. When I give a speech at a conference, I get there early. I go to the breakfast. I go to the trade show. I go to registration. And I just sort of blend into the background and I listen. And I hear more stories and get more anecdotes that later on when I'm giving my speech, I use them and they feel like they know you. That's brilliant. No, I, I, I concur with that. I, just going around and picking up the feel of the room and chatting to people about what they want to hear about. Like that. That's brilliant. And, and tell, tell us um, just one little anecdote before we go on to talk about resilience about uh, Mick Jagger, for example, you know, if you said, is Mick, Jagger, <laughs> Mick Jagger is Mick Jagger a leader? You know, does he have does he have those qualities that makes him a leader? What would you say? Oh, he's a leader. You know, what a, the, I say the four qualities of a, a rock star are uh, passion, and that's not your passion. It's figuring out how to fill the passions, uh, other people's passions. You know, so for example, when Mick Jagger does a concert, he doesn't play. He loves jazz. He loves Frank Sinatra. He loves. You know, he loves everything, but that's not what you want to hear. You want to hear, you know, give me shelter again or, you know, can't get no satisfaction. Passion, knowledge. He's extremely smart. He's extremely well-read. London School of Economics, which he got kicked out of for riding a motorcycle through the library. That was not too smart. But um, networking, he's got, you know, he's got a great business network and appreciation. He takes care of his crew, his staff. Um, he, he, he. He dances two and a half hours a day. He eats right. He stretches. He does yoga. He works out. What is my um, Mick Jagger story? Somehow or another, I was one of the only people in the country that got a phone interview with Mick Jagger prior to one of these Rolling Stones concerts. And I was going to be the MC. I was introducing the band. Um, and when he called, I was... I don't know. I was in the middle of something and I said, oh, hey, Mick, hang on a second. I'll be right with you. Let me get out of this commercial break. And I put him on hold for a couple of minutes. So, And I, I have this recording somewhere. I'll have to find it for you. And then I came back. I was like, you know, and, and we're back live on the air with us is uh, uh, Mick Jagger. Sorry, I had to put you on hold, Mick. And he goes, well, I wouldn't have held on for very long. So I hung up on Robert Plant and I and I um and I I put Mick Jagger on hold. Hey, I'm a businesswoman. I had a show to do. Commercials come first. That's what pays my gig. That's very good. And then um, resilience, um, setbacks, disappointments. 
what has been your sort of learning and picking yourself back up when things have not worked out? I mean, you talked about, you know, getting fired from that radio show because you, you were pregnant. Uh, I think of my, my first wife, who was an army officer like I was at the time. And um, again, they fired her because she was pregnant. You couldn't stay as a female officer in the army if you got pregnant. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It wasn't that long ago. Well, okay, maybe it was, um, 50, um, no, let me think now. It was 27 years ago, but they, they would fire them. They weren't allowed to stay. So what have you done to pick yourself up and be resilient against adversity? It goes back again to that, that being fired from my dream job and all I had ever done for over 20 years and thinking that my life was over and people were going to think I wasn't cool and I was a loser. And, and then fast forward to what we just said, for the most part, people aren't thinking about you. They don't care. And, just just do it. Just pick yourself up and go. It's not failure if you learn a lesson. I, right after I met Charlie, I had already sold my house and I quit my job, given notice. I was moving to LA to act for a living. It's something I've always secretly in the back of my mind wanted to do, be an actress. I moved out to LA, discovered I couldn't act my way out of a box, um, discovered I, I, you know, I, I, I hated it. I hated the lifestyle. My heart wasn't in it. And every once in a while to this day, it's 30 years ago, people will say, oh, that time you failed in LA. I didn't fail. I found out I couldn't act. Or I found out I didn't want to act. You know, I'm going to be acting sort of in my one woman show in November, The Woman in the Mirror, but I'm telling stories. I'm telling stories about Alzheimer's and caregiving and my mom. So I'm not really acting. I'm being myself. I'm just repeating the same lines every night. But you know, it's just, uh, if I could figure out a way to bottle package and sell or give away, there's no such thing as failure. I would. It's just, this pandemic is not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. Just get by one day at a time, one hour at a time. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to try new things. Just keep going. Desmond Tutu has a quote that I start the book with in running for office on tip number one from 101 Ways to Rock, running for office. Desmond Tutu said, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And, and we're almost at the end. Um, sadly, uh, because there's so much we could we could chat about. Uh, I was thinking about brand and reputation, your image and your impact. And, and you have a robustness about you, which I, I love. Um, prepare to learn from mistakes and things like that. But but how have you sought feedback to get better in what you're doing? Because you, you clearly set yourself, you know, very high standards of what you want to achieve. And then you realize what you don't want to do, like acting. So so. What have you done to learn from, from feedback and feed forward on things you want to get better at? I'm not afraid to ask questions. You know, don't be, don't be afraid to fail. Listen, and there's no such thing as a stupid question. Yeah. I love to learn. I think that's why I, you know, one of my favorite places to just sit is a college campus. I feel like I'm absorbing some sort of knowledge just sitting in the commons. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Now that I've decided to do a podcast myself 
and get serious about it. I've done 12 episodes in 2020 just for fun. And then I made the conscious decision in December that in 2021, I'm going to get serious about it. Well, I joined a professional network. I, 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 I'm fortunate enough that I can afford to hire somebody. But I go, I, I research and I learn and I listen and I read. I like to tell people, if there's somebody that you admire, somebody you want to be, how did they get there? What did they do? And if you can't ask them questions, you can at least study them. It used to be called stalking. Now it's called Googling. <laughs> yes, that's very good. And, and I'm going to end with a, a question about what you'd like your legacy to be. But before that, what about a, a good book? Apart from your great books, which 101, um, or Markdown. Um, and, and I'll just repeat that one for anybody listening. 101 Ways to uh, Rock running for office um wherever march 1st is coming out march 1st but yeah wherever books but apart are apart from your outstanding book what else would you say is a great book around i don't know leadership perhaps or it could be any great book i have two, i have i have two favorite books that i go back and reread and recommend all the time. The first one is Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Now it's got some outdated things like when they talk about a typewriter or a Rolodex or whatever, but for the most part, the basic tenets of networking never change. So Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I oh. read it at least once a year. And my other favorite book is Who Moved My Cheese? Yes, love it. Yeah. I was, I had just gotten off the airplane in Los Angeles, LAX, and I had stopped to get gum or I think I was still smoking cigarettes or something. And this man standing in line in front of me had six copies of Who Moved My Cheese? And I, you know, again, being the shy demure flower I am, I went, oh my God, that's the best book. That's my favorite book in the world. You're going to love that. And he goes, he turns around, he goes, thank you. I'm Dr. Spencer. I was just going to ask them if it was okay to sign them. And he has since passed away, but I was like, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I loved him as well. I loved him. That, that cheese mountain and this idea of someone takes the cheese away one day and they're digging in the wall and the floor trying to find it rather than scurrying away and finding a new place. It's very true. But most people sit around bitching. Somebody moved yeah. my cheese. Well, yeah. I'm the kind of person who goes to find out where they moved the cheese why they moved it and how can I get there? And I actually, I have a third book. It's the millionaire next door again, an old book, but I've made all of my three sons read it. And the average millionaire, it's about the U S but it's probably applicable all over the world. The average U uh, the average millionaire in the U S lives in a middle-class home in a middle-class neighborhood, drives an eight year old Ford Explorer, doesn't buy, you know, anything extravagant may take a trip once a year. That's the average millionaire. It's not these flamboyant, you know, big mini mansions and expensive cars. And it's the person you least expect it. So how to friend, win friends and influence people who move my cheese and the millionaire next door. And there's a great books. And I'm particularly taken by who moved my cheese in, in the pandemic, because, um, and this is where my, my favorite sort of stoic philosophy comes from. 
the only thing you control is your own thoughts and the actions you take. You can't, con- I can't control you, what you do. I can't control the pandemic, control, can't control when it comes, the recession, the impact on my business, whatever it might be. But I can take actions and I can think. It's not the events, it's your response to them that, that marks it out. And, and the pandemic, who moved your cheese, uh, who moved my cheese, is a classic because a lot of people are railing against the government, the pandemic, the recession. It's not fair. What about me? Just get on and do something, pivot, do something. Anyway, enough of that. Dana, you're, my final question to you, and uh, it's been a joy having you on the series, and please stay on when we, we finish uh, live. Um, what would you like your, your legacy in your personal life and your work to be? What would you like people to say about you when you've gone? Oh, I would love for millions and millions of people to be able to say each one individually, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for Dana because of something personal I did for them. Well, uh, yeah. We, we, give, we started giving laptops to high school students trapped in poverty when we discovered so many of them uh, didn't have devices. We've probably given away about 400 laptops now. Um, we don't do as many now because there are actual organizations doing it. We're in a pandemic. Everybody, they're trying to get hands, you know, devices into the hands of everyone. Um, but that, I gave you a laptop. I made an introduction. I smiled at you. I told you there's no such thing as job jail. That somehow or another, I touched your life and made it better. Yeah, that's a lovely way. Well, Dana Steele, thank you very much. I've loved uh, having you on the series. It's been fantastic. I wish you every success in all that you're going to do. And I look forward to reading the book. And thank you very much. And it's therockbusiness.com, all things Dana. Again, yeah, you're right. I do entirely too much. But you can can pretty much get to it from my portal, therockbusiness.com. Thank you. This has been lovely. Thank you, Dana. It's been great. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.